0: You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Fighting Fraud on All Fronts and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Sift Science. Okay. I want to welcome everyone to the webinar today. Um, I wanted to take a, just a quick minute and uh, thank thank everyone for joining us today. Um, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing director at Chargebacks 911. Um, also presenting today is, oh, Jeff, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Jeff Sack... Jeff, <Sagawa>. why don't you just introduce yourself?
1: <laughs> yeah, Jared, you, you won't be the first and you won't be the last. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Sakasagawa, one of the two trust and safety architects here at CIF Science.
0: Great. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Jeff. I, I think that, that your insights going to be invaluable. Um, and also with us today is Nate Foss, who is our VP of Partner Relations at Chargebacks 911. Um, Nate is here to back me up and help me answer some of the technical questions that were submitted. Um, by you guys uh, for this webinar Um, so also thanks to you for helping us out and joining us today Nate
2: sure thing thanks Jared thanks Jeff
0: great guys Um, now before I get started I just want to go over how this webinar will be structured Um, the first part of the webinar including a uh, uh, will include a short presentation from myself and from Jeff Um, this portion of the webinar is fairly visual so it's important if possible that you close other windows and give us your attention. The second portion of the webinar will be the Q&A, where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. Um, This portion will be less visual, so it's okay if you want to kind of just listen to that part. Um, Please feel free to submit any questions that you have during the webinar. Uh, We promise to answer any questions submitted, if not live, then by email after the webinar. Lastly, I just want to uh, note that the webinar will be available for replay starting tomorrow. Um, I think that we had a couple of hiccups with the confirmation emails that went out, so we will make the entire webinar, which we we don't normally do, but but for this instance, we will make the entire uh, webinar available for replay. Um, so you can reach out to uh, uh, Jeff or myself if 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 your copy uh, doesn't doesn't arrive, but we'll make an effort to make sure that everybody has an opportunity uh, to watch the webinar. Okay, so for the last few webinars, um, I've started each with a dumb question. Um, I think it's important to be unafraid to ask dumb questions, and, and as my mother used to say, uh, you won't know unless you ask. So um, these questions might be just for me; they might be—I might be the only person that's uh, that's dumb enough to have the question. But I'm hoping that some of the attendees are wondering the same thing. And um, so, do you mind, Jeff, if I ask you a dumb question today? No, by all means. Okay. Um, my my question is this. Uh, between my wife and I, we have five credit and debit cards and it, and it seems like every year, practically one of the credit cards, uh, gets flagged for suspicious fraudulent activity and we have to get a new credit card and it's a big, big pain. Um, but my, my question is, you know, when this happens, it seems to me like the bank is pretty fast or at least recently they've been pretty good at identifying, you know, as soon as it's not me using my credit card number. Um, so, so when you talk about fraud prevention, I know that the banks are, you know, kind of providing a solution for their cardholders. So so what, what, what do you add to that equation and how do you help protect merchants above and beyond the sort of fraud protection that's already baked in, uh, you know, with the banks and the credit card schemes?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Not to be too glib, but if they did that um, fraud protection perfectly. I probably wouldn't have a job, so <laughs> there's we could, we could start with that. But I would also echo what you said, where we've definitely seen advancements in their ability to predict fraud, catch it, work with customers to help rehabilitate their accounts and get new cards out to them. But there's a couple things I'd want to impress upon the audience today. The first is, as deep as a bank's information is about your purchase history. Um, in Jared's example, him and his wife, they would know where they shop and the, the frequency with which they do these things. That pool of data is solely restricted to like their their network and their bank. Whereas, as we're all familiar with, fraud exists on many surfaces around the internet, in many places, sometimes where the bank doesn't have visibility. So that's one thing to keep in mind that um, they can do the best with what they have, but even as wonderful as the job that they can do, there's still a limitation to their scope. And secondly, a lot of these banking institutions have wonderful heritages, right? You think institutions that are over 100 years old, uh, they started with paper and you know they existed on Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of times these companies are still in their transformations of becoming digital natives, right? Of getting their apps out, finding these things, and really translating those old world concepts, including fraud, where you might have something in person with a teller or with checks, and and translating those to the online world. So I still think they're in the process of evaluating and learning these things, and that's really where SIF Science tries to help banks, let alone all the websites and apps that use our services, is really be able to show how through our network of trust we can monitor these things real time and at scale, and hopefully inform and augment Uh, The wonderful job that they're already doing, and hopefully, you know, in the altruistic sense, try to eliminate as much fraud as possible. So, very much a partner in that respect. uh, But just acknowledging where we can help and where they're already doing well, and just trying to double down on that effect.
0: Okay, great. I think I think that's I think that's a really great answer. Um, And you know, and that's something I've always wondered about. So I appreciate you kind of walking me through that. So this next slide is an idea that I talk about, I think, probably in most of the webinars. Um, So if if you've been to another webinar that I've hosted, I apologize for covering the same ground, but I think it's very important. And the basic idea is that chargeback management is simple. It's understanding the sources of your chargebacks. That's hard. Um, So I'm just going to propose that as a thesis. I'm just going to move on and then, um, you know, hopefully be able to tie it together at the end. We'll see. I'm going to use a personal experience to illustrate my point. Um, I got married a few years ago, and my wife is a dietitian. And since meeting her, I've gained 20 pounds. So uh, it's, it's needless to say that diet is a pretty big topic of conversation in my house. And when I think about weight loss, typically I think about two things. I think about calories and exercise. Um, and, and my personal preference is that I focus on one or the other. I'm either going to, you know, uh, start going to the gym or I'm going to, you know, restrict the calories that I intake. Um, I usually try to focus a little more on the calorie side and, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of what I call loophole foods like diet soda and, and fat-free cheese and all, all that nonsense. Um. But according to my wife, apparently artificial sweeteners are bad for me, um, and weight loss is a lot more complex than I was pretending. Um, and so this is, I think, you know, an easy way to understand the same mistake that a lot of merchants make when they, when they think about um, chargeback management. Um, chargebacks are essentially a symptom, and merchants tend to oversimplify the causes, usually solely focusing on either preventing credit card criminal fraud or disputing uh, friendly fraud. But just like with weight loss, there are typically a lot more, it's a lot more complicated. Um, The most important part of effectively managing chargebacks is establishing accurate understanding of what is causing them. The consequences of improperly addressing chargebacks can be disastrous. So that, that sort of leads me to this next slide, which sort of envisions chargeback management as a two-part process. Pre-transaction mitigation, which generally falls under CIF Sciences domain, and post-transaction mitigation, which generally falls under Chargebacks 911 domain. And, you know, w- when you look at this slide, it's it starts to be fairly apparent why the source matters <clears throat> and why I, why I mentioned earlier that that understanding the source is, is, an, is the difficult and important part of uh, chargeback management. But... Um, that's not how, as a merchant, you look at chargebacks. Uh, merchants are essentially blind when it comes to understanding the source of their chargebacks. Um, they rely on reason codes uh, and make assumptions that can grossly impact their ability to effectively manage the problem. So I've I've shown this slide before, and uh, I'm not going to spend too much uh, uh, on this slide today. But if you look at the left pie chart, that's essentially what a lot of merchants are struggling with. Um, the percentages change drastically from merchant to merchant. Um, But, you know, the thing that we see over and over again when we talk to merchants that are struggling with chargebacks, whether they're frustrated because they're only winning 20 percent of their disputes or because their fraud solution isn't preventing, you know, is only preventing half of their chargebacks. um, What we almost always find is that they're using the wrong tool to deal with their chargeback problem or at least an incomplete tool set. Um, So so I think, you know, I, I hope this illustrates uh, why identifying the source of chargebacks sort of matters, because you could you can imagine if you're trying to prevent friendly fraud using a a, a fraud prevention, you know, uh, a pre transaction fraud prevention mechanism, um, you, you're not going to get very good results. And if you're trying to dispute chargebacks that are caused by affiliate fraud or criminal fraud, um, then then similarly you're not going to have very good results. So, so today we're going to talk about some uh, some of these different sort of subsets and some of these different sort of causes of chargebacks. And the three that I'm going to talk about are three that um, you know we 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 help merchants manage uh, at, at Chargebacks 911. Um, <clears throat> the first is friendly fraud, and and just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to go through and kind of define each of these. Um, I think that everyone kind of understands what friendly fraud is. Um, But let me give you my definition. um, And, you know, maybe Nate will have a better definition. I'm not sure. But um, friendly fraud is essentially any chargeback that was filed improperly. Um, For one reason or another, the consumer contacted their bank in order to get a refund. And there's a lot of reasons someone might contact their bank. Um, You know, they might be trying to get something for free, or, you know, a lot of times it's just easier to contact their bank. Um, you know, sometimes there's restocking fees or a return process. you have to pay postage. and um, contacting your bank in that instance is just is just easier. Um, uh, something that merchants misunderstand is that a lot of times friendly fraud will be categorized using fraud reason codes. Um, and we're going to talk about an example of that that I think is a really clear example a little bit later in this webinar. but um, The key with friendly fraud is that it can happen months after the initial transaction, um, and it won't have any of the traditional fraud indicators. So preventing friendly fraud up front, a lot of times people ask, you know, how can I prevent, how can I identify friendly fraudsters before the transaction? But a lot of times um, there isn't any indicator because they aren't friendly fraudsters at that point. Um, There's a lot of reasons um, why it's important to identify and dispute friendly fraud, but but essentially, our our philosophy is dispute, dispute, dispute. Um, you know, the revenue recovery alone is a great reason. Uh, but additionally, we've actually shown uh, through several internal studies that successfully disputing friendly fraud actually reduces chargebacks. Um, this has to do with the reputation at the issuing bank. Um, and if you'd like uh, for for, you know, uh, myself or Nate to share uh, some of those case studies with you, let me know. I'll I'll, I'll send them over. Um, but with these type of chargebacks, the consumer may not even be aware that they filed a chargeback. Um, and so that's, that's another important thing to understand. Uh, many online banks have buttons that say things like, I don't recognize this charge or, um, you know, dispute this charge. And it's very easy for cardholders to, you know, go through a process where they're not even aware of the implications that, you know, this money is now being taken away from the merchant. Um, so, uh, you know, having, having a broad understanding of what friendly fraud is, is is um, is pretty important.
1: Yeah, Jared, I, I just wanted to add one comment. I, I think that's such an astute point because a lot of cardholders are, are trained that if you have a dispute or some kind of qualm that you are made whole. But a lot of times there is an equal thought into where that money comes from, which is something that merchants are acutely aware of because oftentimes they're footing the bill. So really like that last point.
0: Yep, thank you. Okay, so the next one's affiliate fraud. and and we did an entire webinar on this subject a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you're interested, you can email me or you can just find it on our website. Um, I think the replay's still available, so you can you can download that if uh, if if you're concerned about affiliate fraud. Um, so I, I'm I, from from a definition standpoint, um, as far as I'm concerned, affiliate fraud is uh, a pretty broad category, it includes all types of uh, dishonest tactics that affiliates can use to game the system. Um, but in most conversations, when somebody says affiliate fraud, it's a particular type of credit card fraud where the fraudsters are actually after affiliate commissions rather than the merchandise. Um, affiliate fraud is incredibly hard to detect because a lot of fraud indicators aren't there. Uh, For example, shipping and billing are often the same because the fraudster is the affiliate, not the not the person, um, you know, receiving the goods. Um, This can make traditional fraud prevention less effective. Um, But admittedly, you know, if if you have some fraud prevention, then this this sort of strain of affiliate fraud, um, you know, can be prevented a little bit. Um, One of the largest challenges that we see with affiliate fraud is that merchants can be sort of caught off guard uh you know i mean if 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 you're a merchant and you're selling a digital product with a resale value um you need to be very cautious about credit card fraud but other merchants won't be uh have nearly as much of a traditional exposure to risk and um you know if those merchants are using performance marketing uh to drive sales they could see a slew of chargebacks all of a sudden and you know not really understand the cause and um and in many cases, they, they won't realize what's going on for, for a while and uh, uh, not be able to shut off those affiliates. So it's very important that you're able to uh, identify and flag bad affiliates or traffic uh, before things get out of hand. <clears throat> Okay, this is going to be the last one. I'm going to hand this over to Jeff. But but family fraud is really interesting. I think it's a tricky one. Um, for a definition, family fraud is the type of uh, friendly fraud where the card cardholder disputes a charge initiated by a family member. Um, the clearest case, you know, that I can think of, or that, that I can give it as a, as an example, is um, when a child uses a parent's credit card to buy something. And you know, I have kids, so I am sure. That if I'm not careful, one day I'm going to have to deal with charges for gems or some, you know, in-app, you know, I don't know, superpower or something um, because I didn't, I didn't, you know, lock down my credit card in the phone that he was playing on or, or, or whatever. So I, you know, it's something that's very easy to empathize with, you know, you you don't want parents to be on the hook for that type of thing. Um, But you know, most merchants have a process that you can go through when something like this happens, whether it's in an app or whether, you know, they, they made a, you know, a phone call to someplace or, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, really, if you think about it, if a parent files a chargeback, essentially what they're saying is that somebody committed credit card fraud on me. Um, so if it was, you know, if, if it was your kid, um, you know, I I don't know that Classifying that as criminal fraud is 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 the appropriate way, and this is sort of one of those things where we get it gets a little tricky because you know they're saying well I didn't authorize this charge, um, but it's not criminal fraud, right? I mean it's it's you know a family member, or sometimes it's you know an an, an older child that that uh, spent some money sort of a little bit knowingly, but a parent isn't going to press charges. Um, so so contacting the bank and and essentially filing a criminal fraud dispute is is not an appropriate use of the chargeback mechanism. And um, you know, when that happens, we you know, we have to sort of treat those as, as friendly fraud. Um so so I guess basically that's it. I'm gonna hand it over to uh to Jeff at this point and uh you, you won't hear from me pr- very much more. But I, I thank thanks again everybody for uh for uh joining us today.
1: Yeah thank Jeff, you Jared. I don't think
0: I gave you control so I'll just try to move uh, advance the slides for you okay?
1: Okay, yeah thank you. Um, again this is Jeff Uh, yeah I uh, just want to say plus one what Jared said on the last slide Um, hopefully this comment doesn't age myself too much but uh, I'm an uncle and I have a young niece who's six and just seeing the way in which she engages with her mobile devices uh, quickly and you know so fast um, much more so than myself you could easily see how those purchases can happen rapidly and amounts can accumulate really quickly at the same time. So it's something like a lot of parents and and families are having to deal with because, again, I don't think the kids have the concept of (laughs) there's actual money at play here. Um, But that anecdote aside, I'm going to be talking about credit card fraud, um, account takeover, and content fraud, um, but we'll start with credit card fraud. And the general definition we're using today is the idea of that a credit card, whether it be debit or credit, is used to fund theft or fraud. Now, there's many different flavors of this as I think we've kind of talked about thus far and the subject of our webinar alludes to. But really, I think a lot of what we're seeing at CIF Science is the unauthorized use of a card holder's um, information, especially in a card not present environment. There's a lot of reasons for this. Um, more recently, with the EMV liability shift, which consumers see with the adoption of chip and pin cards in their wallets has really made card present fraud a lot harder to commit accordingly. We see that move someplace else because the fraudsters aren't going to give up. They're making money, so that's a lot of what they're doing is online card not present environment. Now, uh, when you're looking here with the infographic is kind of tale of two cities, as it were. And for that, I want to share an anecdote about my own personal life. I used to work at Square. And a lot of times um, you, the, our merchants would see what you see on the left hand side, which is it's this wonderful thing. You're serving the underserved and people that traditionally haven't been able to take credit card payments now can't. So it really enables their share of wallet to increase and really capture sales that would have been lost otherwise. I think the thing that was impressed upon me about working there is not only are, were we introducing people to taking credit card payments, we were also introducing them to the world of credit card fraud and disputes, which sometimes they just didn't have a familiarity with. And hopefully they would look to help from like a chargeback 911 type solution to help them understand some disputes that came in. So a lot of times, not at their own fault, but just kind of the realities of working um, with credit cards is sometimes you'd see what would happen on the right-hand side, right? which is, hey, I'm taking credit cards, that's really great, but now I'm actually starting to see losses accordingly, but I'm, I'm a good merchant, like I don't understand how this is happening. So there was a lot of merchant education that was required to tell them how disputes originate, uh, to Jared's point earlier, how you can represent and start fighting these things and hopefully start to get some wins out of um, representing yourself well and trying to reverse that trend where you're hopefully – maximizing as many positive sales as you have, and really limiting that downside. So on the next slide, I have some statistics for everyone on the webinar. The left-hand graphic just gives a percentage of card fraud per $100. And I can appreciate it's a little weird, it's a little bit of an abstraction, like maybe it seems foreign, like, hey, Jeff, that's a wonderful visual, but I don't understand how that resonates with me. The, The thing I wanna, Get across to the webinar audience is even on cents on the dollar. When you start to think about a lot of earnings calls with like Amazon or traditional retailers like uh, Best Buy or Macy's, et cetera, these cents on $100 for $1 billion dollar companies really adds up quite a lot. Uh, to wit, the statistic on the right hand side. So, card issuers worldwide have experienced $16 billion of fraud losses. So when you think about the dumb question that we led our webinar off with, um, everyone's doing their best to prevent this, but obviously there's still a lot of work left to be done in order to stem this tide. And using solutions like CIS or Chargeback 911 and really having a purpose-built solution to help identify this is really how we're seeing um, dramatic decreases to this number and hopefully really reduce that over time. The next fraud I'm going to talk to everyone about is account takeover. Now, I didn't tell Jared this before the webinar, but I really liked um, one of their blog posts from earlier in February where they had a super good definition of account takeover. So I'm going to steal it liberally, but cite appropriately. Um, So according to Chargebacks 911, account takeover fraud is, quote, a form of identity theft where a third party gains access to unique details of a trusted user's online accounts. Again, I couldn't say it any better, so really like their words. And just, again, same with credit card fraud. This is happening with some regularity and unfortunately, success. If anyone checks out the Breach Level Index, some recent numbers around that, 9.7 billion data records have been lost or stolen since 2013. And it's awful Like just to hear that number, but it's equally important to recognize with that many records out in the world that those data elements are being weaponized for some monetary gain, um, which I'll talk about in the next slide. So a lot of times people think about account takeovers from a personal lens, which is totally appropriate, right? I can't get access to my account. I think we've all seen those Instagram hack stories or Twitter accounts get hacked and they share kind of funny tweets, but they're not entirely funny for the brands that are represented. There's, as the left side of the slide alludes to, a real monetary cost when you think about one of these incidents, because if you're having account takeover on your platform, I would assure you that it's probably not just a one or two time thing. It's probably happening at scale. And that's where the costs really come into play. Is do you need some operations or engineering help to plug holes in, a, or you know, push some kind of patch? There's also a, a cost of a stolen record represented here. And lastly, even if you identify something, what we're seeing in the industry is it actually takes a long time for a lot of merchants to actually do this. So over six months to identify a breach you can kind of see how the first bullet comes into play. If fraudsters have had six months plus with which to take over accounts, probably from some of your really valuable accounts, monetary costs will come into play. Uh, so from the next slide, on, on the left-hand side, it's kind of a funny little graphic I put together, but I wanted it to, to illustrate a point of, if you um, accept the premise that, hey, there's close to 10 billion records breached since 2013, that totality of that information can actually create a wonderfully rich picture about any one of us, right? And that covers the baseline information that you might need to create an account or also like security questions you might have um, from a KBA perspective. So when fraudsters are using this information, when they can create these realistically good profiles, what we've seen in the last year, that ATO losses reached $5 billion. Again, a huge increase year over year. And also the number of attempts tripling within that time frame. And again, like I talked about in the last slide, this isn't a one-time event where you just have to worry about the breach and then you get the account back and you're, you're done. The accumulation of these effects at scale with all of these accounts, with all of these breaches and attempts, accounted to 62 million hours, which is a tremendous amount and a real burden that a lot of people feel in the industry. So for the last fraud I'm going to talk you through is actually about content. And what you're looking at here are just some headlines I pulled from around the last 30 days or so on content moderation and a lot of things that those leading in the online space are doing as a reflection of what they're seeing on their platforms. And how we're defining content abuse for for the audience here today is, you know, this is content that's posted or shared with the intention of exposing scams, spam, or fraud. Again, and that should displace legitimate user-generated content. So this really erodes user trust over time. And what we've seen at Science is sometimes, if not handled appropriately, really affects churn. Now, uh, I want to talk about the middle headline. Um, Full context, I used to be a Facebook employee, and I I worked in stemming online abuse. And the thing that's interesting here is when you think about um, Facebook as a leader in data science, a lot of these things, the number of engagements that happen on their platforms, and their response in trying to get content moderation and abuse back under hold, they're actually doubling a team size to 7,500 reviewers, which is a tremendous amount, let alone for a company that I think a lot of merchants look to and say, like, gosh, wouldn't it be great if I had Facebook's resources to do X? Um, In this case, a lot of merchants don't have the luxury of hiring 7,500 reviewers, which is totally fair. And it's also a good recognition of, the need and necessity to find more scalable automated solutions to help you defeat this type of fraud. Um, And in the next slide, what we're looking at is kind of an encapsulation uh, of what people think about. So starting on the left-hand side, this is a lot of what we think about when we interact with the internet. There's posts happening all the time, you're making purchases, you're commenting all of these engagements, all of these interactions and network effects are happening in real time. And the speed and scale at which these things are happening are are mind-boggling, but it's also really important to note that not all of these things are genuine. So if I can get one more click, Jared. It's important to consider when there's so much scale, when there's so many of these comments and posts happening, not all of these things are legitimate. And not all of these things are done with your best interest in mind and I know again um, what SIFT has learned a lot in working with our clients is finding ways to better identify how a bot might interact with your platform as opposed to a legitimate user because undoubtedly the way they'll interact with your site the things they tend to post to the things they tend to link to are wholly dissimilar than from what a legitimate user might do and again Unfortunately, with great success comes some great costs, and a lot of times it's the attraction of fraudsters, unfortunately. Now, on the next slide, what I wanna kind of take home, and I'll stop talking for a second, but kind of you know bring Jared back into the fold, too, is we've talked about a, a lot of different fraud fronts and how you can consider and appreciate each of these different types of fraud. And I really wanna echo what Jared mentioned earlier with his loophole, <laughs> loophole uh, diet foods argument. I must admit I'm a Coke Zero fan, so that was that was tough to hear. But um, <laughs> using data and using a whole totality of information, plus knowing what purpose you're trying to use that information for, is equally important. Because again, I think what we'll talk to you in the questions, not to give away too many answers, is knowing what type of fraud you're identifying and what data elements can be used to inform your prevention of that type of fraud is really important. So, just for our audience, it's important to recognize these different types and and see the visuals here.
0: Great. So 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 Jeff on the Coke Zero, how, what do you think of the new uh new Coke Zero? Is it better? <laughs> you know what?
1: very sensitive topic. I, I've come around to it. I must admit, uh, when I first saw it, I was a little taken aback because, you know, it's, it's that thing you like and you know, you have over lunch, but, um, I would say, I, I would, I would tell people to drink, try it out, but I, I like it myself. I must admit.
0: Yeah. I, I, I was surprised too. I was a little upset when they said they were discontinuing it. Um, but I, I think the replacement was, was actually probably a little bit better. So, uh, my wife, uh, of course, doesn't agree.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can see why not. That, that yeah. Having her her uh, training and education, I, I could see why that would be.
0: Yeah. Okay, so so we had a bunch of questions submitted uh, when you guys registered. So I think um, you know the the best way to make sure that we're providing the value that or the the information that you guys want is to to just directly answer those questions. Um, so I, th- I think this first one is for you, Jeff. Um, somebody was asking, um, what is the role of the payment gateway when fighting, in fighting fraud?
1: Yeah, I really like this question quite a lot because I think it also goes back to the earlier question we had around banks and, and their the part they play in preventing fraud. What we're seeing is definitely a movement of a lot of payment gateways to actually also provide fraud prevention solutions. These are things that they can provide in-house or also um, partnering with folks to actually leverage their technology in order to benefit their users. The things I would want everyone on the webinar to consider is they definitely have your best interest in mind. They're, They're trying to prevent fraud as much as possible, but one thing to consider is who's actually handling the customer engagements after a declined transaction, after some kind of order cancellation, things like that. Undoubtedly, it's probably you and your team, so really having a good visibility into how a payment gateway might cancel things on your behalf or understanding their methodologies is really important and something I'd encourage anyone on the webinar to have good conversations with their payment gateway about so you can better address these things with your customer because you're probably handling those conversations. And then, just like I said with the bank example, this can be a great way to start your fraud prevention efforts, but obviously somewhat self-serving to SIFT, I wouldn't advocate this as the sole solution that you have in preventing fraud. Um, A good way to think about this is there's so many breaches and abuses happening online, and sometimes there's these press and speaking-like engagements that happen after the fact where these companies are talking to their consumer bases about, hey, this is what happened, this is what we're doing to fix it, and here's how we're moving forward. If you think about putting yourself in those unfortunate shoes, probably what you'd want to impress upon your customers to restore that trust and let them know that you have their best interest in mind is having a multi-layered approach to fighting fraud. Again, see subject line of presentation. But again, finding ways you can augment solutions that a payment gateway might also provide to you, in my opinion, is best uh, in the
0: long run. Great. I think, I think that's great advice. Okay. Um, how can I mitigate chargebacks related to digital content? Um, I'm not sure who who agreed to to answer this one. Um, Nate, do you have any ideas? Sure. Uh-huh.
2: Um, so a couple things that are kind of top of mind on that. And obviously, there's there's tons of ways that you can mitigate chargebacks, and just it just depends on you know what what business policies you might want to put in place and what you can get and put in place through you know sales and marketing. Um, but obviously, you know, a good portion are just going to come from customer confusion or, um, you know, the inability to reach the merchant. So I would recommend obviously having clear credit card descriptors. Um, you know, the the um, example of mine with friendly fraud or family fraud is, um, you know, if your son or daughter is talking to you about, um, you know, the, the video game that they're very enthralled in, they might not uh, be telling you who created that game. It's an epic game or a riot game or something along those lines. So when you see that on your credit card descriptor, uh, you might not recognize that transaction and ultimately, um, you know, dispute it. Some other things, obviously, you would would just want to, uh, you know, have as much defense and charge back compelling evidence as possible. So you want to track things, record IP addresses, activity logs, order histories, And then ultimately, just just make it easy for customers to reach you. And, you know, if you want to be flexible with cancellations or refund windows or anything like that, that's obviously, um, you know, for your business to decide. And then lastly, you know, look look for things uh, similar to fraud prevention. Look for outlier orders, you know, things that are radically different from previous um, customer orders. Look at postcodes. Uh, or just uh, you know large orders you know the average online order is close to 100 bucks whereas the average chargeback is is more than double that um so just 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 some things to think about
0: yeah i i agree i think i think one of the the biggest things with a digital product depending on of course what your product is but um you know, the digital products have have a great opportunity to have a a very flexible money back guarantee, super easy uh, refund process. Um, you know, uh, studies show that when you have a you know a money back guarantee, that that most customers are not going to you know are not going to take advantage of that because most of them aren't going to, you know, come, come and ever request it. Um, But it also will reduce your chargebacks. And, And if you have a digital, if you have a physical product, you have to deal with shipping and you have to deal with restocking. And so there's all that sort of added complexity. And, you know, I think the advice in that case is also to have a really, you know, customer friendly return, uh, uh, solution. But if you have a digital product, you know, a lot of times, a lot of that friction isn't there. So, so it's, so it's a little bit easier. So that would be, you know, probably my, my top of mind suggestion. Um, I think as, as Nate said, pl- plus everything else, I think Nate talked about is, is, is there anything from a criminal fraud standpoint, Jeff, that, that, that sort of, um, people with, that are selling digital goods have to be more concerned about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, them taking advantage of that instant transmission, right? Um, most businesses are in the business. Oh, well, that's duplicitous. Of you know serving their customers, right? You have this good that you're trying to sell and exchange. So oftentimes, rightly so, they have their customers' best interest in mind and providing a great experience. And they're somewhat hesitant to let orders um, spend time in manual review or canceling them, especially when it's high dollar because they don't want to take the risk of possibly misidentifying that and then really losing out on a sale and then especially for one that they think is a high value customer. So I'd say that's something that fraudsters definitely take advantage of is if you can kind of press the issue maybe with a customer service rep or just the timeliness of digital content in order to get your like ill-gotten gains through It is something that is, is very tough to manage but Again, as I think we'll talk about in other answers, really, you can do yourself a kindness by having something that can find and detect this fraud real-time, so you can have the luxury of spending time where you need to be and also let good orders through and hopefully just cancel bad ones outright.
0: Great. What's the most prevalent type of fraud lately, and what's the best way to mitigate it? I don't know. What's... What's the hot topic around your office over there, Jeff? <laughs> yeah,
1: um, as if the earlier slides weren't enough indication, account takeover, I have been equally impressed, but also uh, upset at at how much of this we're seeing out in the wild, especially within the last year. Um, just to, again, use a point I talked about earlier, fraudsters are in the business of committing fraud. And unfortunately, they're achieving a lot of success at this. So once those CP in-person transactions really started to hit their bottom line, they found other ways to monetize. And I think what we're seeing is a huge push to account takeover events. And unfortunately for a lot of what we're seeing with um, prospective clients when they're thinking about evaluating SIFT is Sometimes they may not consider looking at an account takeover event until like the very end of that interaction when money's going out the door or perhaps they're transferring funds or to borrow from the last question, you know they're trying to make a purchase of some digital content, right? And a lot of what we're trying to get across and help educate um, any merchant or customer on is really better identifying the totality of the user journey especially around that original compromise event. Um, there is some reactionary nature to defending and defeating ATO because you need that compromise as like a confirmation that it happened. But um, to stop rambling, I would say, yeah, account takeover is definitely the talk of the office and, and what we've been putting a lot of effort into preventing.
0: Okay. Well, that dovetails into the next question then. Um, so, so account takeover is the big... Uh, you know the the, the big fish right now what are the effective layers that that uh, you guys recommend that merchants use to to help prevent it
1: yeah it's a it's a great question I I think initially you want to have ways to challenge users especially when sensitive customer interactions come into play Uh, things you can think about for your own platforms are there's a change in a password uh, perhaps some contact info which we're seeing a lot with those SIM swapping events, um, those type of very meaningful changes to a platform, having some way to actually authenticate a user when that happens is really important. Again, um, you may need to do some customer education and letting them know, hey, I'm actually doing this for in your best interest because we have your security in mind. Hopefully to a rational consumer this makes sense and something that they can appreciate. But i definitely start there if you don't have that yet. Uh, being able to introduce some friction when appropriate is, is really necessary. And then also um, what we're considering uh, for an, another effective layer is think about your user population. While any account takeover event is like unacceptable, when you think about who your VIP customers are, Perhaps those that are used for marketing collateral to speak to, you know, like Jared's job and his world, or uh, those that perhaps you've partnered with on panels or webinars such as this. Those can unfortunately be targets for account takeover and fraudster as well. So you may want to consider for those in a really high sensitivity um, area or high sensitivity user for you perhaps uh, necessitating or at least strongly suggesting some kind of secondary authentication like two-factor auth that is like just required for their account. But again, giving the context of this is in your best interest in mind, we really wanna secure you on our platform. And then lastly, I think there'll be a theme (laughs) if you haven't picked up on it yet, uh, through this answer and future ones around, I think the most effective layer honestly is making sure that you have a fraud prevention tool or some type of solution that's purposely built for account takeover events uh, in themselves. Really trying to apply some payment fraud logic or methodology may get you some gains, but not necessarily what you would want or expect when you're trying to prevent ATO in and of itself.
0: So, so, so Jeff, are you aware of any fraud prevention tools that, uh, that do this?
1: um i'd have to think quite long and hard um i'm inclined to say sift science uh so hopefully if my ceo is listening he will uh, give me a pat on the back for that one but yeah i check it out siftscience.com
0: okay i I think i mangled the um the language in this one but essentially the the uh, user wants to know if uh they should respond to every chargeback even if it's true fraud what is the best practice um Nate, after uh, uh, VCR, I think that, that, that there's kind of a different thinking about this now, right?
2: Uh, yeah, correct. So that, that, that's what I'm thinking, um, you know, what, what might have spawned this question. And it's probably smart to back up and just quickly, um, I guess, segment the difference between acknowledgement and response. So responding could be you're disputing the uh, the chargeback by way of representment and if that's the case then absolutely you don't you don't have to represent any uh, of your chargebacks that come in and in fact there's a good percentage of online merchants that don't currently Um, that said another thing that you obviously wouldn't want to fight is true criminal fraud Uh, by visa and mastercard standards you the merchant you are liable for those and in fact, will not win those if you do uh, represent them. So, on the flip side of that, um, there is a new change as a part of uh, the Visa Claims Resolution that came out in April um, and the subsequent change with MasterCard that's coming this fall in October, um, where um, merchants are now required to acknowledge chargebacks. And there is a little bit of wiggle room right now just with the deployment of VCR where the fines are very, very nominal. Um, The the most I've heard for merchants that aren't acknowledging for chargebacks is 25 cents, and that is in radical, um, you know, cases. So you might just not even be seeing this um, on your processor statement, but um, absolutely not. In short, we we obviously, we encourage you to dispute and to prove uh, the validity of transactions uh, through representment. And and recover that funds, you have the right as the merchant and that is your protection, just as chargebacks were created as a consumer protection. Uh, But, um, you know, ultimately, if it's true criminal fraud and uh, you as the merchant, let that through your defenses, you're a libel.
0: Okay, I I think we're going to do two more here, um, and then we're kind of running out of time. Um, But like I said, we will uh, make sure that we get answers to anybody that asked the question, um, either during the webinar or ahead of the webinar. Um, But uh, this question is probably better for you, you, Jeff. Uh, How does an e-commerce company verify customers more efficiently?
1: Uh, Yeah, great question. And I'll try to expedite my answer somewhat so we can make sure we get to the other questions. But really, uh, what I encourage you to think about is if you buy my premise from earlier slides that there are many data elements out in the wild for sale um, and many times over, using solely those base elements, you know, name, address, etc., as a way to verify your customers is, is kind of wrought with peril in 2018 because any fraudster worth their metal already has these elements available to them. So, what I'd encourage you to do in verifying more efficiently is find other data elements and streams that can help inform those data points. Uh, What we're seeing a lot and using a lot is, you know, behavioral analytics on perhaps how the customer interacts with their site where maybe you can better inform like, hey, even though we may not be able to inherently entrust name address as much as we used to, the way in which this customer is interacting with our site or engaging with other uh, users is indicative of a, a legitimate uh, customer, and we would kind of verify them in, in line with that. So um, that's, that's something I would want people to consider. And again, being able to identify good versus bad populations uh, for any of these fraud types is really important.
0: Great. And uh, Nate, this, this person uh, wanted to know, what are the best ways to identify friendly fraud? Uh, yeah, so I, I would
2: say look for any sort of proof that display the, that disproves the claim. So, you know, the best way to do this, obviously, first is you want to look at the reason code. And then from there, that'll help guide you to, you know, uh, what sort of compelling evidence you could, could look at to see if this is, in fact, friendly fraud. Um, So, you know, obviously you want to look at things like the customer history, uh, proof of delivery, usage, um, check with your, you know, customer service to see if there's any, um, you know, outreach or customer service recorded or transcripted uh, um, uh, conversation with that, uh, with the customer. You you know, anything that's in your sales records or in your CRM could potentially help you identify a friendly fraud um chargebacks number we've developed um a system it's called intelligent source detection and kind of what what jared had mentioned at the beginning of uh of his segment was uh you know you really want to identify the source of your chargebacks and so so really drilling into the data to help you figure out hey is this something that i should be representing or not um uh, but, but but you know really anything that can that can help you identify um you know, it has this customer charged back previously. So, you know, it is a touchy subject with chargeback negative lists. Um, but uh, there, there's plenty of different ways. And uh, if you, if you'd like to know a little bit more about that, I'm happy to, to take that offline as well.
0: Great. And, um, you know, another great way is to, to, you know, if, what, what we recommend that merchants do a lot of times is, you know, prevent the, Criminal fraud, right? If you have a solution like CEF Science, you can you can usually get that criminal fraud pretty much under control, and um, you know really go through a, your uh, order process and your internal processes and make sure that you guys aren't making any mistakes that are causing chargebacks. And um, it, you know a great way to know what friendly fraud is is by sort of eliminating those other other options, um, and, and then you'll have the re- the remainder. Of your chargebacks will be friendly fraud, and it's, it's much easier to to figure out which ones to dispute at that point. But Okay, let me go. I'm gonna go all the way down to um, oops. I thought this was a good uh, question that we could close on because um, I think we're just about out of time. Um, but uh, uh, Nate, I'll let you start, and then Jeff, I'll give you last word to uh, what what do you guys think the future of the payment industry and online fraud is?
2: Um, yeah, uh, thanks, Jared. I mean, obviously, we know it's a really exciting time to be in payments um and if you're in fraud prevention on this call you you, you know the, it, it is such a dynamic world with all with just how fast things are evolving so it's definitely more than ever has been difficult and it's like hitting a moving target what i'll speak on is just to the, the chargeback world obviously you know chargebacks are created and jeff had even mentioned this um earlier um, you know, the chargeback system was created in the 70s and it's a very archaic system. So there's not a lot of, of data sharing or technology involved in it. I mean, many times you're putting your faxing documents and, you know, uh, using snail mail um, and the like. So, the future of the chargeback world and management is just integrating more technology into that. So things like Visa claims resolution, or specifically Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry (VMPI), where uh, the the card networks and partners alike, such as um, our self chargeback 911, one, are going to leverage uh, communication channels to share data in near real time. So at the point of chargeback origination through VMPI issuers uh i.e you know chase wells fargo will be able to ping through api's merchants to get uh, different data points um, in two seconds or less so they might get ip address or uh, device id so if somebody calls in and says hey you know i don't recognize this transaction the call center rep with uh, chase for uh, for instance would be able to say hey did you know that this was done on jared's ipad and it looks like it's, you know, this, you know, um, basically giving them some, some sort of data point to jog their memory and hopefully curtail uh, the true cases of friendly fraud. Less of chargeback fraud because there's always going to be people out there trying to game the system and ultimately get something for free. But what we ultimately want to do is prevent these innocuous claims that really could be, could be prevented um, if there was just a little bit more data sharing.
0: That, that's that's really great. That's um, I don't know why you brought my iPad into this, but. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but, that, but, but yeah, uh, yeah, I think we're all hoping for you know some technology solutions to to emerge in, in the system. Um, what, what what about you, Jeff?
1: Well, Jared, you should be comfortable knowing my answer does not involve your iPad, so I can start <laughs> there. Um, but I I think. A lot of what I liked about Nate's answer was the the thematic element of of evolution, right? Um, Payments changing the speed, the frequency with which these things are happening. Really, uh, what I'm hopeful for in the online fraud space is seeing an evolution in parallel with these changes where fraud prevention and abuse prevention is actually seen as a catalyst for this type of growth and not something that really detracts from it. Um, A good way to think about this is you know, sometimes you go to these payment conferences and you're talking with some type of merchant, and it's very hush hush, like, oh, we don't have a fraud problem. Like, oh, we would never say that. But at the same time, you're at a payments fraud conference. So it's like, well, I inherently believe that you do have some somewhat. So, also kind of hoping, hopefully, there's an evolution in just an honesty around people and their ability to admit, like, hey, uh, we do have a problem with this. Two, we're not above asking for help. And three, kind kind of finding the right partner to help us prevent these things. Because a lot of these merchants, and rightfully so, they wanted to be a baker or a carpenter or whatever their business is. And it probably, when they started, did not have any intention of going into the fraud prevention space, which is fair. So yeah, I think to wrap up my answer, I would say hopefully we can just Keep providing positive experiences, use technologies, and democratize access to great fraud prevention tools in order to enable these things. So that's kind of my hope for the future uh, for all involved, uh, for those on the webinar, and those who will hear us later.
0: Okay, great. Thank you, thank you to Nate and to Jeff for joining us here today. I think this was a, um, a really successful webinar, and uh, I put um, um, my email address and uh, Jeff's email address back up on the screen. If um, anybody wants to follow up with us offline, um, we'll be happy to to continue a conversation on any of this stuff. Um, All right, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Take care, guys. Thanks, everyone.